It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Juan Williams, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm Dave Anthony. Is Vladimir Putin bluffing, or is the Russian leader actually planning to invade Ukraine? I personally think that this is Putin's time, that he knows that if he's ever going to do this, that now is a time with a weak president after what happened in Afghanistan and the debacle there. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. We know inflation is up and it's impacting the cost of everything, especially food prices. But the people who grow that food are feeling the cost increases too. The commodity markets are up, but they're not up enough to offset the cost of inflation. And I'm Gordon Chang. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. They've been on the brink of war for weeks in Ukraine. But Russia's leader makes it sound like the tension is easing. Do we want war or not? Of course not. That is why we have offered our proposals to start the negotiation process, which should lead to an agreement of providing equal security for everybody, including our country. And in addition to Vladimir Putin's words, actions. Russia's showing videos of troops and weapons being moved back to their bases. However, uh, we have not so far seen any sign of de-escalation on the ground. Just the opposite, says NATO leader Jens Stoltenberg. They have increased the number of uh, troops uh, and uh, more troops are on their way. It's believed 150,000 Russian troops are near Ukraine on three sides of that country. There's, you know, what Russia says and there's what Russia does. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We're in the window where we believe an attack could come at any time. Uh, and that would be preceded by a fabricated pretext that the Russians use as an excuse to launch an invasion. The U.S. and our allies have warned if Russia does that, there will be severe economic consequences. Russia is always very deceptive. I think this is a, a another disinformation campaign that they're spreading that that, oh, we uh, are de-escalating. Congressman Michael McCall from Texas is the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee who wants the U.S. to sanction Russia now, not waiting any longer. I think this is classic Putin. Uh, yeah, the, the Duma, which is the Russian uh, parliament, if you will, um, passed a resolution to uh, name the Donbass region, which is eastern Ukraine, as an independent state. Um, setting up for what I would think would be potentially a collision between Ukraine and the Donbass region in what they call this false flag operation where they can say Ukraine attacked this independent state and we're just protecting them. And now we're going to go in with the invasion. Okay, so now is very, that similar to, Congressman, is that similar to what we saw in 2014 when Russia took over Crimea? Is this the same kind of a plan? Yeah, you know, it's that's a great point, uh, David. And this is uh, out of the same playbook. You know, we've seen it before, and I, I don't know why we're not seeing it now. I think I think the experts are seeing this in our in both military and intelligence community. Um, you know, false flag was an operation that Hitler used in Poland to um, sort of fabricate an, uh, an attack by uh, the Poles against the Germans, and then they went into Poland. And so... This is very nothing new in the European continent. And um, 
I think, you know, Putin is in the driver's seat here. He's got all the options on the table. And we've been projecting really weakness this entire time. And, you know, history teaches us that uh, weakness invites aggression. You are among the Republicans pushing for Congress to do something now. The president and Democrats have said, look, if Russia invades, we're going to hit them hard with this severe economic punishment like they've never seen before. You don't want to wait. Why? Because I don't want to see an invasion and I don't want to see a war. Um, and the best way to do that is to provide deterrence. And that's my my biggest uh, criticism of this administration is that since the buildup last March, they've not pr- provided Ukraine with the weapons they needed. They haven't provided any sanctions in response to the aggressive provocations of, of Putin. And now we're in a really bad spot. And, you know, it just it hasn't worked. It's been a failed policy. So we introduced uh, uh, limited sanctions now in response to their cyber attacks, in response to their military buildup, but also very strong sanctions if the event, event uh, that a um, invasion did occur, including Nord Stream 2, without a presidential waiver. I can't emphasize this one enough is I love the charge on congressionally mandated sanctions to stop Putin's pipeline into Europe. And we never envisioned a president would waive that in the national interest of the United States. But this president did. Um, and it's been a big mistake. I think this is when it all started and gave Putin the roadmap to taking back the breadbasket of, of Russia. And that's Ukraine, which he's always wanted to do. And he wants to weaken NATO. And then finally, take control of the Black Sea where he can control the energy supply. That's really what a lot of what this is all about is about energy. There already is the Nord Stream pipeline. This one, which would go Russia to Germany, would increase the amount of natural gas that Russia could send in to Europe. President Biden was very strong in saying, if Russia invades, it's over. We're shutting down Nord Stream 2, which is not not active yet, correct? It's not a pipeline in, that's in operation yet, correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's been built. It has not been certified by the EU. Okay. So he has said that we're it's not going to happen. We're shutting it down. Now, the German chancellor refused to say the same words. Well, I do think that should be a, a strong deterrence to Putin. You know, he, he built that pipeline around Ukraine because he didn't want them getting any profits off the pipeline. Uh, so that was a slap in the face to Ukraine. And Germany uh, has not been the strongest NATO ally. And the Chancellor of Germany has not really come out explicitly saying that the pipeline would be shut down upon an invasion. And actually, if you look at the, the chief lobbyist for the pipeline, uh, the gas, Gazprom, is the former Chancellor of Germany, uh, Schroeder. So this, this is in, really... Uh, an amazing thing that uh, the president waived those congressionally mandated sanctions. What we're saying in our bill is, look, I know we we, uh, we want to believe you, Mr. President, that you will shut this down if they invade, but you already waived them before. And so in our bill, we take the presidential waiver out. So these are mandatory sanctions by Congress that will take effect if and when an invasion occurs. And we take the presidential authority away. Of course, the White House didn't like that language. And they they both killed my uh, bill in the Senate, and they also stripped it from any negotiations in the Senate as well. So, I mean, you have your proposal, but based on that and the way things are and how Democrats control Congress, your legislation, these sanctions, you're up against it, right? You're, they're not, how are you going to get them to go anywhere? 
Well, it's like any negotiation. You have to, and I would argue with Biden and Putin, you have to negotiate us at a strength and not weakness. And I would challenge the Democrats to come back with what they agree with in this bill so we can maybe work something out. Uh, but, you know, time's of the essence and, and time is running out. Um, as you know, there's a very short window at play here. There is also talk that if we were to punish Russia, Russia would hit us back with all kinds of cyber attacks. And I want to take you back, Congressman, last June, President Biden met with Russian leader Vladimir Putin in Geneva. They talked about cybersecurity, and this was just after that colonial pipeline hack that shut down gas in the southeast U.S. There were other hacks as well. The president said this. There are no threats, just simple assertions made, and no, well, if you do that, then we'll do this, with anything I said. It was just letting him know where I stood. Now, he also said he gave the Russian leader like a list of sectors, critical sectors of infrastructure that would be like red lines to cross if attacked. Was that a good move? Was that a smart approach? Do you think the president handled that well? If there was if there are consequences to bad behavior, yes. <clears throat> but you know, when the red lines are drawn and crossed and there are no consequences, that's that's when they're weak and ineffective. And in fact, send to Putin the absolute wrong message that he can be empowered and emboldened, just like when Obama and Biden did the red sand uh, red line in, in Syria. Right. And then they crossed it and nothing happened. Same thing is happening in the cyberspace. In fact, the Ukraine came under heavy attack from Russia. I believe the attribution is still out there uh, from Russia. The defense, their basically defense department and banks came under a cyber attack with no uh, no consequence uh, to that. Now, Ukraine is not a NATO ally. Uh, we They're not under Article 5. And we have no obligation to, and we're certainly not going to put troops in there. Uh, but Russia, uh, this is the problem, is that when he knows he can get away with the cyber attacks, uh, and I, I don't believe this president is projecting strength, but rather weakness, and that is what the heart of the problem is. Now, the Russians say this is all about making certain that Ukraine is never allowed into NATO, and they don't want missiles deployed in, in, in their backyard in Europe, and they want assurances that, that the U.S. And, and NATO will not be in their you know former Soviet countries and all that. Is there any diplomacy that can work along those lines at all? Well, yeah, first of all, I think Ukraine is a sovereign nation. They have a right to self-determination. Uh, that would require unanimous agreement by NATO. I don't think you'd see that right now because of probably Germany and France. But having said that, um, I know that the heart of the negotiations right now are to uh, resurrect the what they call the INF Treaty, uh, which would deal with uh, missiles um, on the border, um, not only uh, Ukraine, but also the Baltic states and our NATO allies on the eastern flank and also our troop exercises along, you know, that eastern front of Europe. Um, you know, the problem, you know, Trump pulled out of the INF because the Russians, uh, they they violated and they violated so many times that uh, President Trump thought it was worthless. And so he pulled out of the INF. Now, the Biden administration wants to resurrect the INF. And, you know, we'll see how that goes. But that's about the only thing that I've seen on the negotiating table right now, you know, with the Russians. I personally think that this is Putin's time, that he knows that if he's ever going to do this, that now 
is a time with a weak president after what happened in Afghanistan and the debacle there. Um, and the, the other thing, Dave, is, is the uh, this unholy alliance of President Xi and Putin that we saw take place at the Beijing Olympics where they had a pact against NATO Western aggression. And by the way, stay out of Taiwan in our backyard in the South China Sea. The Olympics are over this weekend. Is there a chance that Vladimir Putin was waiting for the Olympics to end to do something in Ukraine? Do you think that he's actually going into Ukraine or is this just going to go on and on and on like this for months? I personally think he's going in and that's based upon people I trust in the military and intelligence community. Um, He's waiting for the right time. He does have a window uh, to do this between now and, and March. Um, I have to think, and I've always said after the Olympics would be the time, there was some talk about February 16th. Um, I have to think that he, President Xi, and he had conversations, and I don't think she would want him to uh, reign on uh, his, his Olympic party, right? That, that would be the worst thing for China. So I, I have, personally think it will happen after the Olympics, and, and I think fair, fairly soon after. Congressman Michael McCall, ranking member in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Republican from Texas. Thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. This is Gordon Chang with your Fox News commentary coming up. Inflation is up 7.5% in one year. This wipes out many wage gains, but that percent increase is not evenly applied. In many cases, prices for things have increased more than that. And if you've purchased food at the grocery store, you likely know this all too well. Meat and eggs are up over 13%. Poultry up almost 10%. Milk up 6.8%. Bread up just under 6%. And coffee, wow, up 8.6%. Consumers also paying a whopping 40% more for gas. Fox's Claudia Cowan reporting from a grocery store in California. At several recent public speaking events, the president has acknowledged the inflationary pressures. And while his administration has alleged anti-competitive behaviors by some in the food industry, leading to increased prices, the president continues to insist his stalled out Build Back Better plan holds the answers when it comes to other kinds of costs. You still have to pay for childcare. Child care is a cost for millions of families. You still have to pay your prescription drug prices. You still have to pay for health care. You want to lower the cost of living for people, help them in those areas. We've heard that many of these inflationary pressures are largely tied to COVID-related supply chain issues. Getting products across the board has been more difficult, and suppliers have jacked up costs to deal with it. The Labor Department recently said producer prices have increased nearly 10% in one year. When I look at my books right now, it's not very pretty. Brooks Barnes runs a farm with his father in Wilson County, North Carolina. I see the inflation that we're seeing across the U.S. right now. It's not only in the grocery store. It's not not only at, at Target or or Cato Max, it is you know it's also in, our, in in everything we touch, and you know we as farmers have tremendous amounts of input to grow a crop each and every year, and it's everything we use: our fertilizer, our lime, our chemicals, our seeds, our machinery, our parts, and availability of things too is is 
nerve wracking right now. They've got a tractor been sitting in the shop over two months now, and and I'm waiting on a about a twelve dollar filter from John Deere that I still don't have, and that's the only thing keeping me from getting that tractor back. You know, I've been working on budgets. That's what I do in the winter time, and our budget is going to be extremely tight this year. You know, most time my goal was to make X amount of money, and my goal this time is to break even. I'm just trying to survive to see next year. Wow. Well, I'm sorry. Um, does it? It sounds like you're dealing with supply chain issues, right? I mean, that's sort of our understanding, right, is that inflation is being largely impacted by supply chain issues. You're experiencing, it sounds like, getting your hands on actual things. And once you do, the price is up. Is that fair? That's that's a very fair statement. I can give you a couple examples. One example would be um, liquid nitrogen, which we're putting on our wheat right now to bring the wheat out of winter dormancy to bring it back to producing to growing so we can harvest it in June. And we're putting liquid nitrogen on it to finish the crop out right now. And last year, the 24S that we put on that liquid nitrogen basically bought within a week of right now last year was $175 a ton. And today, that same liquid nitrogen is costing me $500 a ton. It's a well over a 200% increase. And I can wow. promise you the price that I received for my wheat is not up 200%. That's the first one. Another one I can come up with real quick off the hip. Roundup last March, I paid $16 for Roundup. They started talking about global supply issues because a lot of the the ingredients that go in Roundup come from overseas. And they started talking about shipping issues and supply issues and price going up. So I went ahead and bought enough Roundup, or what I thought would be enough Roundup to run our farm back in September, October of 21. And the same Roundup that I had paid $16 for in March costed me 40 bucks a gallon. And if I had to buy the same Roundup today, it would be over $60 a gallon. Um, And, you know, if I was just using five or 10 gallons, it'd be one thing. But when you go to talking, you know, we'll use 12, 1300 gallons of Roundup a year. You know, I bought it at 40, so that's a $24 spread. You know, that's about a $30,000 increase right there just on one chemical. And that's an extreme example, and the nitrogen is extreme. But every input we use right now is up. Nothing, no, nothing is flat or, or, or cheaper. Nothing. And the commodity markets are up, but they're not up enough to offset the cost of inflation. Yeah. What, what all do you grow? And is one crop going to be – are you hopeful about one crop in particular this year more than, than any other, you know, given demand? Well, the the thing that looks the best on paper to me is just I can't plant all one crop because of rotation issues. But we grow corn, wheat, soybeans, we grow tobacco, and we grow sweet potatoes. And soybeans pencil out on paper okay, but I can't plant all soybeans. The tobacco pencils out so-so, but it's a very labor-intensive crop and a high fertilizer consumption crop. And I don't think we're going to go backwards on the tobacco, but I'm not sure that we're going to make any money with it either. But Everything else I just talked about, especially corn, I see no way I can come out on corn and I see no way I can come out on an acre of sweet potatoes. Hmm. But I have to plant it because, you know, myself as a producer, you know, you the consumer, when you go to the grocery store, you need, I mean, not everybody likes sweet potatoes, but most people do. And <laughs> there's no sweet potatoes on the grocery store itself. And who's going to get the blame? I am, right? How I know you said you're a second generation farmer. You work with your father, mm-hmm. and you and I are about the I same do. age. We're in our middle ages. We won't. We don't need to go into any more detail on that. Um, but it sounds like you've been a farmer for a bit um, and grew up around it. Can you think of a time? Can you when you talk with your dad? Can you guys think of a time where it was comparable to this? Is this the toughest year it's it's ever been? I mean, weather aside, um, my dad's been farming since 1976. I've heard him say it many times lately. He's never seen anything like it. I know I've never seen anything like it. 
I graduated from NC State in 04, so I'm about to put my 18th crop in the ground, which does not seem right. Seems like that was just yesterday. But, but you know, I grew up, like I said, I've been around the farm my whole life. I've just been doing it full time since I graduated college. But I know I've never seen anything like it. I know he's never seen anything like it. And, mm. um, you know, it's, it's not a good feeling knowing going into the year there's a really good chance, really good possibility that I may not get back what I invest. And th- that's a scary feeling. For sure. When you talk to others in your industry, you know, other people, other farmers, maybe even, or just other people in the business, um, what's the vibe? What are people saying? Is there like a fear that this is going to last a while? What are people talking about? You know, everybody's hoping it'll it'll be over with sooner rather than later. But I know this year is not going to be good. And we're just hoping that next year is going to be good. We as farmers, you know, we always seem to find a way to make it. You know, all our distributors are doing the best they can for supply. Um, I had one out here yesterday afternoon I had a meeting with, and he was telling me some things that were going to be really tight to go ahead and get my hands on it as soon as I can. Whereas mm-hmm. in a general environment of farming, if I need chemical X, I just pick up the phone and I call my distributor and say, hi, I need X amount of gallons of chemical X. And, you know, they'll send it on. And that's not, I, I have more chemicals in inventory right now than I would ever have in any years past at any point in time. And I, I don't think I'm the only farmer around like that, you know, because if we plant a crop and we get halfway through it and we don't have what we need to finish out the crop or to, or to nurture the crop, then we're really up the creek without a paddle. So, you know, we're trying to make sure that we have all our all our inputs, everything we need here on the farm already. Some some things is not a there's not a supply issue on, but there's more things that are than are not. I want your thoughts on what, if any, solutions you see, because I know a lot of folks talk about, you know, we need to have more stuff made here in the U.S., right? American made. That might be helpful. But as we've talked, I understand your costs have to do with things like fertilizer, weed killer, et cetera. Um, so let's let's take weed, the weed killer, right? The, the Roundup, for example. Monsanto mm-hmm. says they don't buy glyphosate in in China for their weed killer for for the Roundup. It's made in the in the mm-hmm. U.S. That their product overall mm-hmm. is made in the U.S. But you just noted, right? A lot of the ingredients are are sometimes made overseas, and there is a shortage of the main main ingredient glyphosate out of China, and that's put a you know crunch on the general supply, right? So there's just less of it overall. So if you want some. And you're used to going to China, you might go elsewhere for that that glyphosate, right? And it's it, the whole thing is driving up costs. So when we talk about solutions, do you see any or is, or, or is this more of a waiting game in your mind? I think this is more of a wait and see game. You know, something that would help more so than anything is, and I'm going to get sidetracked here a little bit, I think, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going I'm to pull it all back together. But, you know, this fuel issue we have right now and all these pipelines shut down around the world and, and, and shipping costs. And, you know, a ship has to have fuel just like your car does, just like my tractor does. And that's another reason chemical costs are going so up, up so much is some of this stuff that is brought in from ports from overseas. Their shipping costs are up tremendously to get the same product. You know, some of these pipelines would open back up and, and, and our fuel costs would go back down. And some of these restrictions would go away that are in place now. I think that would help more so than anything. Um, I'm not so sure that that it's not there. It's getting your hands on it more so than than the availability of it. I think the transportation of it is the is the bigger issue rather than the availability of it in most cases. Huh. Interesting. Um, do you blame anyone for this? Is this just COVID in your mind that sort of blew up supply chains and caused a shortage of of 
of products or, or is there some action that was or was not taken in your mind that you're frustrated with? Maybe to your fuel point, like we know the president, for example, is focused in, in part on alleging anti-competitive behaviors, for example, in the meat industry and blaming that on some of the increased prices we're seeing, for example, with meat. Do you what's your assessment? If, if Do you have any blame or or not? I don't have a particular blame, but I think and you asked my opinion, I'm going to give it to you. I think the COVID thing was was blown out of the water to some extent. Yes, COVID was real. I have had it. And unfortunately for some people, they don't make it. I think the whole pandemic was was blown out of proportion. All these businesses shutting down just killed the economy. You know, people lost their jobs and and getting the economy back up and running. So, yeah, yes. Do I think COVID had a lot to do with it? Yes. But I think it was more more so as some of the policy actions took him with COVID on how to handle it versus the COVID itself, if that makes any sense. Sure. Um, finally, you're you're a father of three. You got to shop and take care of. You got to shop and take care of the kids, right? I have kids myself. I know everything for them is more expensive. Um, you're not just a producer of food. You are a consumer. Um, as a consumer, as a father, what what is your sense of the cost of things right now? It's crazy, and people, you know, most people have a, a steady income, or they get paid salary by hourly. But my income can vary and never seen it where I didn't where I didn't produce a profit. So I'm going to have to eat in some of last year's profit just to provide for my family for this year, because you're right. Going to the grocery store is crazy. And and the sad part about it is I don't think I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet by any means, because this crop we're getting ready to put in the ground is going to be the most expensive crop that we've ever seen as the ag industry as a whole. And I'm not the only one that that's affecting. I mean, it's affecting every farmer in this country. And, you know, the American farmer is, is, is somewhat the backbone of this country. You know, we have to stay in business. We have to be viable and we have to be sustainable to keep food on the grocery store shelves. And the only way we're going to stay in business this year is to get some compensation from somewhere, whether it be higher prices for our commodities. And like I stated earlier, they have gone up. They've not got, they've not gone up enough to cover the, the spread of the inflation of the extra costs. We're going to incur as farmers and, you know, we, we've got to have some help from somewhere or, or the ag industry as a whole is going to be in big trouble. Oh, Brooks Barnes, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. We appreciate it. I do, too. Any time. I appreciate the chance to talk to you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to Tyrus and Tim. Every week, Fox Nation host Tyrus and Fox News contributor Kat Tim give their hot takes, explore weird headlines, and share amusing stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Gordon Chang. What's on your mind? The Chinese regime is hiding no more. At the Winter Olympics... A proud and arrogant ruling group is flaunting an image the world abhors. Beijing, for instance, chose Chief Abao as a torchbearer. The colonel, a, quote, Galwan Valley border clash hero, according to Communist Party media, led a surprise attack on the night of June 15th, 2020, deep in Indian-controlled territory in the Himalayas. 20 Indian troopers were killed, and Chi suffered a four-inch gash on his forehead. New Delhi was outraged. It had planned to send diplomats to the opening and closing ceremonies. 
After the announcement that Xi would carry the torch in a relay, however, India pulled its representation, joining the American-led diplomatic boycott of the Games. Thomas Bach rushed to Beijing's defense. The International Olympic Committee president, responding to a question about Colonel Xi, pointed out that a British veteran was a torchbearer in the 2012 London Summer Games. The two cases, however, are not comparable. Ricky Ferguson, who lost both legs in Afghanistan, was fighting terrorists who had attacked innocent civilians. Xi, on the other hand, was an aggressor, leading a sneak attack on soldiers defending their own soil. Beijing has made the games more than a celebration of murdering Indian soldiers. The Communist Party is boasting about two genocides. First, Uyghur cross-country skier Denegir Ilamujong lit the Olympic flame along with a Han athlete. China's regime is committing genocide by, among other acts, killing Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities, as well as forcing abortions and sterilizations. The Chinese regime is also committing crimes against humanity, mass detentions, torture, rape, organ harvesting, and slavery against them. In addition, its treatment of Tibetans is barbaric. Commentators are fond of comparing the ongoing Winter Games to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. China's crimes, I think, are worse than those of the Third Reich during the mid-1930s. China's second genocide was the deliberate spread of COVID-19 beyond its borders. Chinese leaders in January 2020 told the world that the SARS-CoV-2 pathogen was not readily transmissible when they knew it was highly contagious and, while locking down their own country, tried to persuade others to take arrivals from China without restrictions. It was those arrivals that turned a disease that should have been confined to the central part of China into a pandemic quickly reaching every corner of the planet. The intentional spread, the first time in history that one nation has attacked every other one, meets the definition of that term in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention of 1948 because the Chinese regime targeted a specific group, non-Chinese people. China highlighted its horrific crime by having World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus serve as a torchbearer. China's Global Times, the Communist Party tabloid, last week said China is holding the Olympics, quote, to promote world peace. No, the Chinese regime, with its choice of torchbearers, is using the Olympic stage to promote genocidal and murderous acts. I'm Gordon Chang the author of The Coming Collapse of China. You can find me on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.